Good afternoon. That was super awkward. Good start. Good afternoon. Even my core college students that I see every week didn't even look at me. They're just looking down. Zero support. I am the resolve pastor. I'm looking at three of you right now. It's okay. Um, as we're getting into the word today, will you turn with me to the book of John chapter 4? And we're going to be in verses 7 through 26. John chapter 4, verses 7 through 26. Um, and while you're turning there, I know a lot of you take notes. Um, the sermon title today is not Teacher to Savior. Um, Pastor D.C. masterfully preached already on that last week. Today is At the Well. At the Well. Um, so you can correct that in your notes or whatever you're doing. But the word today is going to come from the book of John, chapter 4, verses 7 through 26. And will you read the word of God with me? A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? For he gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on the mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship, for, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You know, the fact that this is a one-week sermon is very difficult because there's, there's a lot of stuff in here. Um, and it's just really hard to cut out. And just so that you kind of have a reference point for what pastors do during the week, because I know that you think that we all watch YouTube videos and talk to each other about the Holy Spirit in the office. Um, most of it is researching. And if you're a good pastor, it's not about how much you're trying to squeeze into the passage or the sermon. It's how much you're cutting out to focus on the context and the need of the text of that day. And so Pastor Mike, Pastor DC, especially Pastor DC last week, they anguish and they agonize over what they will not include, but what they are cutting out so that we can distill upon the word of God and the spirit moving. And so today, there's a lot of stuff here in John 4, but the series is called Encountering Jesus. 
And so we're going to mainly focus on Jesus talking with the woman at the well. So if you go back with me to verse 7 through 9, here's what it says. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have, have no dealings with Samaritans. See, Jesus is going from the south in, in Galilee, or in Judea, all the way up to the north in, in Galilee. And in the middle is this little town of Samaria called Sychar. And I don't know if you've walked in the desert before, and I've done it for 13 minutes, and it's difficult. <laughs> and, I mean, 30 minutes, 13 minutes, three hours, the 13 minutes that I was a shepherd in the deserts of Arizona, forget the bottle of water that I bought, I needed 17. You're thirsty. Sheep do not go where they, you tell them to go, and they go up and down mountains faster than you. And so I can't imagine the thirst and the fatigue and the hotness, not the blingness, but the, hot, the temperature hotness that Jesus is enduring here. And he gets to this well, the well of Jacob. This is where they magically flash the picture right here. <laughs> Every time. There we go. The well of Jacob is here. And this, this exists today. There's a church actually over this well that Jacob had set up. And so Jesus finally stumbles to this very deep well, and he has no water with him, and he has no means of getting water out of this very deep well. And so there's only one person there. It's a woman, and on top of that, it's a Samaritan woman. And he asks her for a drink of water. And notice what it doesn't say there. It doesn't say Jesus calculated whether this was appropriate or not. Jesus calculated from his Superman vision, like her genetics and the genomes, and oh, she's a Samaritan and I'm a Jew, so like I can't. He simply was thirsty, and so he asked the only person there at noon during the middle of the hot day, will you please give me some water from this well, for I have been walking and I am alone and I am thirsty. The Samaritan woman must have looked at Jesus with suspicion at best or judging condemnation at worst. Was this guy dumb or was he delirious? What is his problem? And she says to him, who, who do you think you are talking to me? For first of all, I'm a woman. And second of all, I'm a Samaritan. And you know that our peoples don't really get along. And even though everyone knew that Samaritans and Jews didn't intermingle, Samaritans and Jews came from basically the same bloodline of Abraham, and for centuries they had legally set up laws to discriminate against one another. There was a history documented of violence, thievery, murder, killing, and death. And at the best of times, there was this Cold War mentality of hatred and judgment and discrimination. And here was not only a Jew, but a man, and not only a man, but a rabbi, and not only a rabbi, but a well-known teacher of the Jewish law coming to a Samaritan town and asking a Samaritan woman for water. A Jewish man would, have, would never allow himself to be alone with a woman, let alone a Samaritan woman. A Jewish man of standing, let alone, would never touch a drinking bowl that another Samaritan woman had touched. See, what we're painting here and what John 4 is introducing in the tension here is that this is not supposed to happen, and yet somehow Jesus not just does it, but effortlessly steps into this broken situation. Jesus redefines here our culture. Jesus redefines the rules and the social realities that are set up in that time. In fact, in verse 27, when these disciples finally get back from getting food in the city, they are, what's the word? 
surprised. That's a really nice English word that whoever translated kind of put in there and softened the blow. But the actual word is, in verse 27, the disciples were disgusted at the fact that Jesus was talking to a woman. The disciples were shocked that he would lower himself, not only talk to a woman, ew, but to talk to a Samaritan woman, ew. (laughs) But Jesus engages with her. He sees with her eye to eye, and she is not only valued, she is a human being. She is, at this moment, a daughter of heaven. 10 through 12. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. There's this dichotomy here that's introduced, earthly water from the well versus this living water that Jesus is talking about. He says, if you knew who I was, if you knew who I was and what I was answering in thousands of years of just promising, you wouldn't be worried about who I am and who you are and how I'm going to get this water out of this deep well. You would immediately ask me for living water. She doesn't see the idea of salvation immediately that he presents in the living water. She's obsessed and only sees her perspective of reality, which is my life stinks I'm in the desert, this well is deep, and I have to come here at least twice a day and carry water back home. Can we just sit here for a second? Anybody work out? Everyone should raise their hand until January. (laughs) I joined a gym because I had to because my parents-in-law bought me a membership, and it is packed. And in preparing for this message last week and thinking about it, I began to Google on the weight bench. I wasn't benching. I was just sitting there because I was tired. How, how heavy is it to carry water? I've never carried water. Thank the Lord I grew up in America now. And the Google answer says it varies from between 20 to 55 pounds. And so I got this long bar. I don't even know what it's called, but you put it across your shoulder. And I put about 60 pounds on it because I'm a man. And what I did was I, be, I went to this turf area of the, of the gym, and I began to try to just walk back and forth. And I did it pretty well because I'm strong. But then I remember that this was water. And I don't know if you've ever carried water, but even in a bucket or a jug, when you walk with water, it sloshes from side to side. And they didn't have really well-fitting caps back then, so I figured you have to, at a minimum, walk very carefully and straight upright and balance it all the way. So I did it very slowly, pretending that they were jugs of water, and I, and I did it. It was harder. And then I imagined that there were rocks and deserts and lizards and spiders and things that want to eat me. And so I had to be ever vigilant. And it was hard. And the 15 minutes that I just figured this out and tried it on my own, I actually sweat. I sweated. And I don't really sweat when I go to the gym. When the beads start, it's time to go home. But here's the the reality of what this woman is talking about. She is so obsessed with her reality of having to get water every day twice, and it's heavy and it's difficult, that she doesn't understand, and she wants this, and Jesus presenting this living water doesn't really make a difference to her. Jesus often speaks in this dual layered language that shades the true nature of the gospel. John 3, last week, Nicodemus was confused by being reborn or having two births. John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and there's confusion there. How am I, Do I eat you? 
Here Jesus, though, sets up the gospel idea of grace. It is a gift from God, and he is the Messiah that is the source of the living water. In verse 13 through 15, he continues. Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, meaning everyone who drinks of this, this well water. And by the, well, by the way, well water wasn't necessarily crisp or Culligan man. It was standstill, kind of brackish, dirty water. It was not ideal. But everyone who drinks of this water in this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him or her will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up in eternal life. And so the woman here finally beginning to understand this, living water, in verse 15 says, Sir, give me this water. Why? For salvation? For reconciliation with God? No. Sir, give me this water so that, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here again to draw water because I'm tired and it's hot. The idea of living water was, one, that it was of God, and two, that it was the saving and refreshing grace that would rescue us from our sin. This Greek word for living water, halomenu, literally means a spring of water. Jesus is talking about a never-ending, a never-dying, an ever-refreshing spring of living water that would refresh our souls, that would cleanse our sins, and that would bring us into perfect union with Christ and with God once again. And what this woman thought was, this is going to be a water fountain plugged into my neck that whenever I'm thirsty, I twist the dial, and it's going to go, yes, living water, never-ending, good, no more walking with 60 pounds on my shoulders. There's a difference of perspective here. There's a difference of understanding of what the gospel and of what living water is. Don't we wrestle with that today too? Don't we have a just perspective of the gospel and what Christ calls us to that is very different with what Christ actually calls us to? So often we take the gospel to mean ease for our comfort today, our convenience today easing of our hardships in this hour, satisfaction in our circumstances this year, accomplishments of our so-called perseverance in this life. Christian authors write books about it and make millions, millions of dollars off of other Christians. In fact, preparing for this sermon this week, there were times where I prayed to Jesus, if you just get me through this week and took away this cold and this bumsar or this body aches, then I will live the rest of my life joyfully for you. Just let it go away. And then I thought, Shoot, you can't promise that because you already did that when you became a pastor. Is the perspective that we live with now lined up with what Christ calls us to for eternity? What we miss here is that Jesus is not primarily talking about our temporary happiness or even our comfort. Notice that he doesn't at one point say to the Samaritan woman, here are the seven things that you need to do to make water easier for you. Or go get a piece of paper and charcoal, and I'm going to draw you a diagram of a wheelbarrow or whatever. He offers her living water for her eternal redemption and salvation. Brothers and sisters, what I can confidently tell you from that is, Christ is for our righteousness and for our redemption eternally, not our temporary comfort and not our temporary joy. Christ is not about our happiness here. He is about our happiness eternally. The gospel calls us to an eternal righteousness 
and not a let me be comfortable while I'm on earth type of mentality and attitude. And yet, why is it that you, me, us, we, notice I didn't say you because I'm trying to be more compassionate and winsome. Why is it that you, me, us, we, we wrestle with everything about this world being the most important thing? Jesus points out that the woman is, in fact, in need of his living water, his salvation, and the redemption and restoration. He says, you are in need of this. In verse 16 through 18, there's a twist. Come back with me. Jesus said to her, now that you realize you need this living water, now that you will accept it, and everything will be fine, and let's just go home and be comfortable and happy and drink really cool water. No. Jesus says to her in 16, Go and call your husband and come here. So before this, he says, you are in need of this. You are wanting. You are not enough. You are worried about your earthly thirst that will eternally be with you unless you have living water. And now after pointing out her need, her wanting, he says in verse 16, go and call your husband and bring him here to me. 17, the woman answers him, I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, you're right. I know that already. In fact, you not only don't have a husband, you've had five other husbands before this dude that you're just shacking up with right now. What is he doing? We all know that when you're going to give the gospel to somebody, what are you supposed to do? Be really nice and non-confrontational. You don't say, hey, alcoholic, you need Jesus. You say, I know drinking is fun, but sometimes we drink too much. And at my church, Pastor Michael's the best preacher ever. Just listen to him. And what do we do? We bring people to church that are not gospel living, and we dump them on our pastors, and we say, okay, thanks, and we leave. <laughs> I can tell you this from experience. Pastor Paul, here's so-and-so. Here are their sins. Okay, well, good luck. You're saved now. What is Jesus doing? I know you don't have a husband. The guy you're living with right now is not your husband. You're just shacking up. In fact, you've had five husbands before, and none of those dudes were your husband. This is called conviction. Brothers and sisters, what Jesus is doing here is not unloving, it's actually loving. He is pointing out her sin, not in order to condemn her, but in order to help her realize that she is not enough on her own and that she would be humbled and confess of her sin and repent and turn away from it and believe and accept the living water of salvation of Jesus Christ. You know, so often as Christians, and I'm included in you, with you, hopefully as one of them, we don't want to be convicted of our sins. And especially younger generations say the most boringest and tired out line ever in the history of lines. You can't judge me. Only Jesus can judge. Stop. Okay? Just no. But the idea here is that Christ is convicting this woman of her sin to help her realize and shining a mirror of her reality saying, you are not enough, but I am. And the water that I'm offering you is eternal, living, cleansing, saving water that you will never need anything else again in me. You've been trying to find your satisfaction in the love of men. And look, this sixth dude doesn't want to marry you. Probably was a smart guy. He said, homegirl's really pretty and I want to hang out with her. But there were five other dudes that either died or it didn't work out. So let me just hang out with her and shack up or whatever, and I'm not going to actually commit to her. 
You are trying to find your identity in all these earthly things, Samaritan woman. You are not only a woman, which is bad enough at that time, but you're a Samaritan, which is worse. And third, your life is defined by sin, by lust, by idolatry, and finding your comfort and your satisfaction in everything but God. Repent, confess, humble yourself, and draw near, and accept. Who is a Samaritan woman? Can we just talk about that for a second? She's going to carry water at 12 o'clock, the hottest part of the day. If you know anything about desert times, you don't do anything at the hottest part of the day. I'm from Houston, and they have millions and millions of acres of parks there. No one's ever there. Why? Because it's hot all the time. It's humid all the time. I don't know why we have trails here. And if you walk on trails, God bless you, but why? It's hot. There's tacos to eat. There's hot dogs to eat. It's an air-conditioned room. Let's, stay, let's go there. But this woman was going to draw water heavily at noon at the hottest part of the day when most women would go either in the morning or in the evening in the cool of the night or in the cool of the morning. Why? Because she knew who she was in her sin. There was shame there. And she was shaded or guilted or judged or condemned by the other women of the community that would go draw water there. Have you ever, have you ever been shamed knowing that you were worthy of it? My earliest memory of shaming is when I went to Southern Christian Middle School. And my mom, being a loving Korean mom, not only made me wear a straight-up suit tuxedo for picture day, and nobody else did. I wish I had the picture of that, but I don't. And so first of all, my first day of school, I'm the Asian kid wearing a suit and a tie, and everyone else is wearing a T-shirt and shorts, and so I'm already the loser. Second, I'm like two feet tall, and they're all seven feet, 14 inches. <laughs> Third, for lunch, my mom packed me kimbap, and kimchi. And these are, I mean, God bless them, white Dutch people who don't know what any of that is in 1989. And so I was shamed. I remember even, not forget the students, I remember my teacher smelling something in the air and going, mmm, that's interesting. <laughs> and I remember I didn't get called on for like the first semester. I remember my report card saying, needs to participate in class more. And I remember thinking, call me when I raise my hand. <laughs> I was shamed, and I believed that, because my, my food was garlicky, stinky, and cold, and weird, and red, and not PB&J sandwiches. And so what I did was, at lunch, I would eat it in the hallway, or I just wouldn't eat. Oh. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. My best friend went to high school, and he was so intimidated by the high school lunchroom that he ate his lunch in a stall in the bathroom by himself. Oh. See, nobody said that that time. <laughs> she avoided other people in her life. She was judged by her community. She was rejected by her community to the point where she would get water in a very difficult physical time at the hottest part of the day. Two, she was on her fifth she had five husbands before, and the sixth one didn't even want to do the work of marrying her. On top of that, Jewish law said you could get married up to three times. No matter what the circumstance, no matter what the sin was, Jewish Old Testament law said you could get married up to three times, but after three times, you're extra super dirty and unclean. Homegirl had what? Five. She herself is filled with shame and self-loathing. She doesn't want to be seen. She is not only a woman, she's a Samaritan woman, she is worthless, she is broken, she's a sinner, she is unworthy, and yet Jesus says to her, I am the living water, believe and accept. 
Conviction is not a bad thing. Conviction reveals to us the true nature of who we are in order that we would cling to the true nature of who Jesus is. Conviction allows us in the freedom of his nature to draw near to him who is worthy even when we are not. Verse 19 through 20. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I laughed when I was reading that because at this point, the woman's like, "Mm, you're different. Something about you. I don't know what it is. But something's different about you. You have ESPN. The truth has been revealed. Sir, there is something different about you. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Do you see the brilliance of what she just did here? She was convicted of her sin of having five husbands and living with someone now who was not her husband. And she says, oh my goodness, you're extra powerful. Something's different about you. You're a prophet. Let me deflect and change the subject. Let me get our minds not, off of, not on my sin, but let's get it on, on another thing. And she brings up this old theological argument. See, the Samaritans thought that you had to worry, worship truly only good worship you could only do on this other mountain. And the Jews thought to truly worship God, you could only do it in Jerusalem. And she was baiting Jesus to change the subject to deflect because she doesn't want to talk about her own shortcomings. It should work. And here's how Jesus answers her in 21 through 24. Women, believe the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship this Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus says, forget the argument. It's bunk. It's over. For a time is coming, and in fact is here now because of me, that it's not about where you worship, but it's about who you worship and how you worship. It's not about where you are in the holiest of sites or in the temple of God or on, the, on a great mountain or a shrine somewhere. It's not about where you worship, but it is about who you worship and how you worship. So we could take the ANCC praise team and find some holy mountains in the middle of nowhere and set all this up and then just start to praise whatever. But if we're singing songs about Apple, is that genuine worship? And yet last week, I'm not going to say whose baby it was, I walked into the baby room and there was one girl with an iPad singing praise songs. Jesus loves me. Pause because the iPad was doing something. Yes, he does. Pause because the iPad is showing you something. And she just sang off key, Jesus loves me, over and over and over again. And I was not moved, but I was convicted because she, she believed that Jesus loved her. And she just wanted to sing that randomly in outbursts of praise. Now you tell me, does God accept the worship of one who humbles him or herself before him? Or does he accept the place that they worship in? This is why when we say that the church is not a building and it is the people of God, could we authentically and genuinely worship God if we met in the parking lot? No. You know why? Oh, the sound system's not even today. Did you hear the bassist? He was so late. Oh, my gosh. That was half a key minor, and that was just not that great. Okay. But Jesus says true worship entails an understanding of who we worship, the urgency of our worship, the purpose of our worship, and who should worship. 
all of God's people. Why? Because he is worthy. This is masterful because Jesus bears witness the gospel to the woman, and as she tries to deflect and ignore and move away from the conviction of her sins, he doesn't argue with her, but he says the true path of salvation is authentic worship in spirit and in truth and in accepting Christ as the source of living water. We say that we are saved and that we are found, but do we recognize that we are first and foremost broken and utterly lost without Jesus Christ? You know what I'm sick and tired of hearing in the church? Oh, I was so lost, but I'm found. I'm so lost, but I was found. And what we concentrate on is the I was found part, the I'm found. But almost none, if any of us, really truly recognize and believe that even though we are found without Jesus, I'm truly lost. I'm truly lost. Costco is my favorite place in the world to hate. I love to hate everything about Costco. I love that it takes, it turns 54-year-olds into, like, elbowing other people out of the way for a piece of, like, chicken nugget. I love that we wait in lines to return things that we don't need to buy in the first place. I love that, especially in California, I have waited 40 minutes to get gas. 40 minutes to save $3. And when I realized the math, I was, like, the second in line to get gas, so I couldn't leave. It's just the way it is. There was, a kid in, there was a kid following his mother around in Costco, and she was two cart legs in front of her, of him. And he just started to cry. I don't know where you are. Where are you? Mom! And she has another kid in the cart, so she's like, listen, I'm right here. So you just need to keep following along. And I love that she was just not taking it. I'm right here. Let's go. And she kept walking. And the dumb thing is that this boy kept on crying and followed after his mom. Where are you? Mom! And I'm, I'm stuck because there's two-way traffic going in this aisle. And the guy, the little boy keeps crying louder and louder and louder. It drove me nuts. And they went to the same aisle, three aisles that I had to go to. <laughs> and now the mom was extra busy and she had done what a good mom does after three aisles. She just began to ignore her son. And that was great. And so what I did was I went up a little bit ahead. And I went in front of the little boy and really cut off the boy from his mom. <laughs> We're all broken. <laughs> like, I, I, I fantasize about disciplining my future children. Like, I love it. Like, it's going to be fun. But you know what was astonishing about this kid? Even though he had followed his mom, lost, for three aisles, crying, when he realized and opened his eyes and saw that it was not his mom in front of him, but a handsome, tall Asian guy, <laughs> he lost it. He freaked out. And I love that you like that illustration, but can we, can we reflect on what that means for us here? We say that we are found in Christ, but do we understand that desperately without him, we are utterly and epically lost? And do we seek and yearn and pant for him in desperation because we know that we are lost and, and nothing without him? That's the difference in perspective. That's the difference with what, with what Christ was pursuing the Samaritan woman that's the difference between what the Samaritan woman does not understand about the eternal versus the temporary. We say that we are lost, and we say, oh, everything's great because Jesus found me, but do you truly understand who you are without Christ? And he closes in 25 through 26. 
The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. I love this woman, and I hope I get to meet her in heaven. Because to the very end, did you hear what she says in verse 25? Ah, who knows of these things? When the Messiah comes, he'll make everything clear. She still doesn't get it. She still, to this moment, doesn't fully believe Jesus. And the, and, and the conversation ends with Jesus in 26, when she finally clicks over. Jesus said to her, woman, I, who speak to you now, am he. How do I know that the woman gets it after this? What happens in the verses that follow, if you want to read during the week? The disciples come back and say, why are you doing this? This is disgusting. Don't talk to a woman, a Samaritan woman, a, a, a dirty, sexually just broken Samaritan woman. What does she do? She immediately from this conversation goes into the town of people that hates her and judges her, and she begins to share the gospel, the good news of living water found in Christ. And what happens after this from verse, I think it's 39 through the next chapters, the lame walk, the blind see, and the dead are brought back to life. She accepts the living water for herself vertically, and she goes out to horizontally share the source of grace and salvation. Why? Because she truly understands now she was once truly lost and now in Christ in the living water she is found. And she goes forth to share. The first main thing we talked about is this. Jesus finds us in our brokenness. Notice that Jesus doesn't go to a nice place and he, he finds an appointment with her and there's really good coffee and just good ambiance. No, he goes down there. Show that map once again, please. That is not the map that I want to show. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go. This is Judea down here and this is Jerusalem. Up here is Galilee, Nazareth, the hometown of Jesus. And so Jesus is going from the south to the north. Here is where Samaria is, and this is where Sychar is. It's in the middle. What most Jews would do is that they hated Samaritans so much that instead of going through Samaria, they would go around all this way, past the Jordan River, past this river, and then go past the Jordan River again, and then go around. They would boomerang around just to avoid Samaritans. Now think about that. I'm going to command you to run 17 miles after this, but for half of you, I'm going to say no, half of you have to run 27 miles. You wouldn't want to do it. But in fact, the challenging nature of the gospel and where Jesus finds us in our sin is this. Verse 4 says, he not only passed through the middle, this, the idea of Samaria or Sakar, he had to pass through. In other words, it was intention to go to the lost, to find the lost, and to give them the living water of grace. Jesus and the gospel does not find us where we are worthy because we are never worthy, does not find us when we are put together because we are never put together. The gospel finds us in our brokenness and in our sin. And Christ engages with us in our weakness, for in our weakness, he is truly strong. Brothers and sisters, there are people in this room that have been Christians because they've been in a room at 11 or 9.30 a.m. on a Sunday for years and decades. Congratulations. But there are, there are some of us who have hardened our heart, who have stepped away from Jesus because we feel that we aren't ready to meet with him yet. We're really not ready to give, him, give over our lives to the, glory of the God, to the glory of God or to the gospel yet. Just newsflash, I know I'm 35 and a lot of you are older than me and I don't know anything, it's true. But this one I'm confident in, you will never be ready. 
by yourself, by myself, by ourselves, we will never be ready. And the, and the absolute beauty of the grace of God is that he doesn't call us to be ready. He calls us to be faithful. He says, in your brokenness, I will go. And if you want to argue with me about the nature of the gospel being in the dirt and not in, in the heavenly realms of, of just goodness, the Son of God creator and the Word became nothing and not only became a man, Paul says the form of a slave. I'm spitting all over the place today. I'm so sorry. Not only the form of a slave, but a baby, a helpless little child. He didn't go around to save himself or to keep clean. He went through and he finds this woman in her dirtiness and in her brokenness to redeem her. You and I will never be ready, and yet the living water of God's salvation and cleansing of redemption is given to us not when we are clean, but especially when we are dirty, unworthy, broken. Conviction is not a bad thing because it invites us to humility to come back to God. Second, Jesus corrects our perspective. How many of us can confidently say that we are living with the kingdom of heaven as our ultimate hope and goal? I've been in ministry for 13 years and only now, 14 years, congratulations to me. 14 years I've been in ministry and only now, after 14 years of setting up churches, of, of bringing churches back from the dead or whatever God has called me to do, only now have I really been asking myself, does this matter when, when compared to the eternity of heaven? Does it matter? Does, does spending an extra 10 minutes on this like graphic for the booklet for the college retreat, does this matter in killing myself in judgment? Does it matter when compared to the eternity of heaven? And that's a holy pastor thing that I have to do. But when it comes to our jobs, when it comes to how we use our resources, our time, when it comes to how we treat our children, when it comes to how we see our spouses, our community, how we serve or don't serve at church, or what justifications we use to do whatever we do in life, are we looking to the eternity of heaven as Christ calls us to, or is it all for the temporary nature of now? You know what's crazy about the woman? I understand her. Now, I mean, I haven't had five wives, but like I understand, I understand the desperation with which she lives because she is desperately in the now, in the brokenness of her life, trying to find satisfaction and worth. She is looking to a man to give her worth and status in a community that hates her. And the first guy didn't work out, second guy didn't work out, third guy didn't work out, fourth guy didn't work out, and she didn't consider the possibility of not getting married and trusting that she was loved by God because she was desperately obsessed with now. And finally, at the sixth guy, he didn't even want to marry her, and she was lost. I understand her. If this sermon doesn't go well, I'm not a good pastor. If people don't shake my hand on the way out, they don't really like me. If somebody gives me the side-eye glance on, on, at church today, they're judging me because I'm not as good as Pastor DC and Pastor Michael. Not that I'll ever be as good as Pastor DC, especially because he's great, or Pastor Michael because now he has a baby. All these things, <laughs> all these things, I swear, like, I, feel, I feel like less of a pastor because everyone here has a baby, like right now. And like, I don't. And so I'm like, Charlene, get on it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That was my one. I get one comment. She's not even looking at me right now. She's so mad. <laughs> but is our perspective in line with the gospel? And is it for the glory of God eternally rather than temporarily? And third and finally, 
Jesus alone is the gift of living water. What does that mean? Because I don't think anybody here in this room would disagree with me that Christ alone is not only the living water, but the source of it. He alone is our salvation, yes? You know what that means then? That everything else that we cling to is not. If Christ is the living water, if Christ dictates, determines, and drives everything about our lives for eternity and not for temporary comfort or happiness, then it means that we have to look at everything else in our lives and they must be secondary to the gospel and the glory of God. They must be. Because if he is the source of our salvation, then nothing else is. An idol is giving something worth that it does not deserve. An idol is giving something worth more than what God deserves. So for some of us, it is our job. For some of us, it is our car. And some of you have nice cars, and I really want to drive it. Some of us, it is our children. And it's really weird for me to say that, because I don't have children, but seeing all the babies, like everyone has a baby, like I can see how it's a baby, how the baby could be an idol. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to wrestle with mine too, because they will be perfectly behaved, perfectly dressed children all the time. Or else they'll get it. But if Christ is our source of hope and salvation, then everything else cannot and must not be it. What we see at the well is that Jesus did not come to avoid, ignore, or disengage himself with the sinners. What we see at this simple conversation at the well is that Christ redefines who this woman is, not by what she has done, but by what he has done and who he is. And that this living water not only cleanses her of her sins, but it redefines the priority of her life to live freely, to let others know of what she has received, and to glorify and honor God. And these are the three things that we can live with in the gospel. That we are redefined by the righteousness of God, that our perspective is shaped by him and not by us, and third, that we respond and that we are agents of renewal who go and make known the glory and the grace that Christ is Savior. And what happens when we, when we surrender to this? The lame walk, the blind see, and the dead come to life. Brothers and sisters, that we would joyfully receive the gift of living water in Christ as our salvation, and that as children of heaven, not children of Korea or ANCC or of La Cañada, or of wherever you live, or Apple, or wherever you work, or how many children you have, but as children of God, that we would make known that he is the living water of our lives. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I know that you're here, so I'm not going to ask that you would be here with us, but I would ask that you would reveal yourself that you would move and speak and convict in a way that we cannot ignore or deny you of your rightful place as king and as ruler and as Lord of our lives. And Father, in this simple conversation in John 4, we see, we see the majesty and the magnitude of your grace for us. We see how you reach down into the mire um, to cleanse, to call, and Lord, to offer grace, not to those who are worthy of it, but to those who are unworthy of it. And so, Lord, that we would accept freely in confession, in repentance and humility, and, Lord, that we would surrender ourselves to the process of living for you in the freedom and the joy that you offer, trusting that you are not only good, but that you, Father, will finish the good work that you have begun in us, 
both in this life, but more importantly, especially in the eternity to come with you. And Lord, that we would surrender and submit ourselves to that. And that as you are our Lord and Savior, that we would really recognize that not only are we found in you, but that nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else is enough and nothing else truly offers us a hope of salvation. And so Lord, let us cling to you. Let us cling to you in our unworthiness for you have said it is not about our identity, but about yours. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.